The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. I don't know about you, but I sure find myself asking myself, is what I'm doing today the highest and best use of my time for my organization? Or am I just relying on old habits, kind of passing time? Which of those is true? Which of those isn't? Uh, To lead this discussion, to answer those questions, Rick Simmons. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Hey, man. How are you? Nice to to meet you. And uh, Thanks for sharing what you know with us. This is uh, going to be a good, interesting conversation. So, uh, what do people? You know, what's the truth? I mean, are, do, do most executives feel like they're contributing at their highest and best level? Yeah, I think I think quietly they're burdened with this with this question, Joel. I, I'm not sure they they talk about it at the golf club, um, but I think quietly and in the rooms that we spend time with them, they're they're trying to figure out: Am I showing up in a way that is is emblematic? of of the person I was earlier in my career and just running that same play and running those old habits or am I really evolving into the person that my organization needs me to be today and and in fact getting ready for the leader it needs tomorrow and those are difficult questions Um, and when you're running a business in the face of all of disruption that we've seen over the last several years it's a question that often drops on the priority list but it's still an important question they're all asking themselves. I have to wonder, is this the kind of question that a person uh, asks out loud or is this something that's done in like a private coaching session with someone? I mean, is, or, or is this an organizational question? I mean, I mean, you know, kind of where does it fit? Yeah, I would say yes. And, 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 and in fact, I would say that often it, it shows up in when we talk to a leader after they've had a meeting in conference room A, then a meeting in conference room B, and then a meeting in conference room C, and now it's lunchtime, and they're retrospectively assessing how they showed up in those meetings. And they're trying to figure out whether they showed up in a way that really invited the very best from those teams in those rooms. And the reality, Joel, is that they needed to be one version of themselves in one room and another slightly different version of themselves in the next conference room. And they're trying to figure out how they can create a, um, a leadership signature, a version of themselves they want to be today that, that, that their organization really needs. And that often shows up explicitly. It often shows up in coaching sessions. 
And it's certainly a question that runs quietly through their minds, I would say, on a regular basis. You know, do you think that most people are thinking about their own performance or do you think that they're uh, even self-aware enough to have that kind of conversation? Because to me, a lot of people spend time criticizing uh, and, and, and badgering other people, maybe because they're afraid to take the blame themselves for what's going on because maybe it's their fault. But do you think that most people have the wherewithal to even ask that question of themselves? Am I doing my best? Yeah, I would say across the general population, no. Um, but, but I bring this topic up and I think it's a good one for this show for your listeners, because as you move up the, the, the trajectory of leadership talent, you move from, from, uh, from an individual contributor or subject matter expert to, to an achiever, to what we call the highest expression of leadership capability, this catalyst level, which is a very small percentage of folks. But as you move closer to or achieve this catalyst level uh, leader status, you become more interested in what you can achieve through and with other people than you are concerned about how and what you can achieve on your own. So as you move higher on that strata, it becomes more of an explicit question. But to your point, it's not a high percentage of people, but those people that are asking it create a high leverage opportunity, both for themselves and their organizations. Yeah. I've always thought that the senior executive should first point to him or herself and say, this is not working because of me. And they do what they have to do to get everything all straightened out. And then if it doesn't get straightened out after they've tried to straighten it out, then it's probably the other person's fault. Uh, you know, I mean, I've always looked at it that way for myself. I, you know, I don't know what other people do, but that's kind of what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I think that, that, that taking that inside out approach, you know, assess, uh, you know, refine oneself and then, and then cast a wider net as you go out, I think is, is always a winning formula. I mean, I guess I would ask you, Joel, from, from, from your experience, you have as, as much a view on this too. Do you see people, what's the percentage that you see people able to make that pivot, able to make a self-assessment and then make the changes necessary? I, I would say privately, uh, and of course this isn't privately, but I would, I would probably say that people generally do not have the capability. Most people uh, run around blaming other people instead of taking the blame to themselves uh, and before they really kind of go work with other people to solve the problem. Um, you, you know, uh, I, I guess there are professional managers and there are people who become managers kind of through their career. And, and, and those are different things. Entrepreneurial organizations tend not to have professional managers the same way that maybe public companies do or companies that have been structured over a long period of time. Family companies probably don't have professional management the same way. And, you know, they kind of run things from the seat of their pants the way they see it working. Um, I think your question is a great question. Is it the highest and best use? And it's the kind of thing where you sit, you know, in your uh, in, in the most quiet place of your life, wherever that is, and you just have to do some assessment about yourself. You know, what am I going to do better? And uh, the question I like to ask is is not so much highest and best use, but I, uh, I just I frame it a little bit differently. And that is, um, am I using all of the talents that I have? And, you know, and okay, in this area I am, in this area I'm not, and I need to do better in this area. And every year I get a little better. Uh, and, and I would hope that people would be uh, introspective, uh, but uh, I don't know that everybody is. Yeah. And Joel, what I would say is, uh, and that all checks out from, from, from my vantage point, um, I would say that, you know, as human beings, we are pattern recognizing mimicking machines. And what I mean by that is that 
that unless we're presented with data to, to suggest we do something different, then we're, we're often not motivated enough to do anything different. So, you know, we think about, and I think we, we're universally exposed to this concept we refer to as liminal space. Liminal space, Joel, as we think about it, as I think about it, are these periods of discontinuity that create openness to change. And so, you know, we, we had a group of leaders, uh, 20 leaders, um, right before the pandemic broke. And we, we had a, a three or four hour dinner where each of these leaders stood up and talked about a, a pivotal period of, 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 of near tragic circumstances, either personally or professionally in the business or whatever, that at the time they thought was going to be a career derailer. But what they look back and realize now is that each of those moments was exactly the catalyst that, that helped ascend them to the top. So we actually, we, we try to encourage people to be aware of these disruptive moments because it can actually be a portal to gaining that awareness because, you know, the openness to change is not equally available on Tuesday at nine as it is Thursday at four. We've got to have these, these, these snow globe moments where, where life is shaken up a bit, where we can be more open to that awareness and then do something about it. Well, I mean, listen, everybody says that growth happens outside your comfort zone. Uh, it happens in disruptive moments. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I just constantly think that disruption is like the best thing that we can have. The pandemic is terrible as it is, uh, is going to make our world better in the long run because we're going to we're going to abandon a lot of things that aren't working, that are broken. A lot of the anachronisms of our society are, are, are being reexamined right now and they will be eliminated and new things will happen um, without an event like this. Uh, we just kind of go on and on and on because the truth is, I think in our very core, human beings are kind of lazy. I mean, our brain is kind of built to do, to, to expend the least amount of energy and do the least amount that it has to do. Yeah. Well, agreed for sure. And, and I would say, you know, there's examples of organizations that, that were, were, were faced with some, some difficult strategic questions. If I can offer an example, you know, you, you look at a company like Veradesk. I, I use a stand-up desk. I'm not using one today, but but I use one. And, and I think we all know them as a prominent player in the stand-up desk uh, uh, industry. And, you know, what we what what many don't know is that Veradesk had created a whole suite of office products that they were hoping to launch into the marketplace, but they were strategically wrestling with whether they wanted to potentially water down their dominance in the stand-up desk area by 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 creating this whole new suite of offerings. And so they were really wrestling with that. What we learn now is that their degree of preparation was met with an opportunity in the pandemic for them to pull off the shelf all those products that they had been imagining and looking for that entry point for. And, and the pandemic offered an entry point for them to do that. My point there is that that we have to be prepared. We have to be properly ready for these disruptive moments, I think. And there's degrees of readiness to be able to seize on those moments. Veradesk, which if you now go to their website, no longer references Dask in their brand. It's just Vera because they've broadened their suite of, of offerings. And I think in much the same way as leaders, there's, a, there's an opportunity to be prepared for these disruptive moments so we can harness them that much more effectively. So, so what's, what's the kind of the strategy that companies need to think about for uh, for preparing for something that they don't know what it is yet. What, what's, you know, how do you kind of be generally ready? You know, I mean, I mean, you could exercise a lot and you could have be strong and you'll know, be ready to run fast, but 
you know, what are specific things companies can do to kind of be ready for a shakeup? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, having a vision and, and, uh, and, and an eye towards the future of your enterprise is, is like a muscle group. You know, we can, in the midst of a pandemic, we can feel as if, well, that's a nice to have, that's a plus one sort of activity, but that's not a, a core operating uh, principle or, or priority. And I would say that, that um, gaining, evolving your vision for the future of your enterprise, thinking 10x about it prepares you for those out of nowhere opportunities that may present themselves. And yeah. I think Veridesk's example was one of those. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's um, that, that's kind of a hard one. I'm, I, I'm with you. I think the company need to think about the future. They think about different iterations about the future. Uh, probably easier said than done for a lot of companies. And, and a lot of companies are kind of just treading water to begin with. They're just trying to hang in there, let alone uh, do long-term strategic planning. But a little bit of planning has to happen every day. Uh, it doesn't just happen in giant clumps. I mean, it happens a little at a time over time. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's uh, pretty smart. You know, what do you, uh, I, I know you wrote a book and, you know, tell us a little bit about what the the, the, the breadth of the book was. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, thanks, Joel. I, I, you know, building on, on our conversational thread a moment ago and leading into the book, you know, uh, Amy and I never aspired to be authors. Um, uh, it's over the years, clients have continued to ask, Hey, where can we learn more about this work and we read more about this. And, and so we felt a bit of a responsibility to, to pull together some of our thinking into a, a singular text. But I think, you know, more practically speaking, we looked at the data, you know, in 1955, the average life expectancy of a fortune 500 company was 75 years. You fast forward to 2008, the average life expectancy was 15 Today, it's less than a decade. We live in a world that's more volatile, more uncertain, more complex and ambiguous than ever before. And helping leaders gain a sense of agility in the face of all of that disruption, not to just navigate it, but to actually harness it for all the opportunity that lives within it was, was really the impetus behind writing the book and, and spending some time studying these disruptive moments. So what, uh, have you gotten any feedback from that book? Like what are the big takeaways that companies have, uh, have determined? Like, were there, were there certain kinds of, of concepts that you put on the table that somebody said, this really made a big difference for us? Yeah. And, and this isn't a super sexy answer, Joel. So i um, just keeping it real here on your show. Um, the, 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 the far and away takeaway that we've heard from the book is, is it's kind of like, and I don't know if this analogy totally checks out, but it's like, you know, there was a, there was a day we, we had never seen or heard of Haley's Comet. And then there was the next day, right. And we all like, we discovered Haley's Comet. It was there all along. We just hadn't seen it yet. And most leaders and, and teams that come back to us in organizations who've adopted this mindset of liminal space have simply said to us being aware that disruptive moments hold great potential, that we can disproportionately affect the arc of our organization, knowing that during these disruptive moments, we have the greatest access to doing that has been the single greatest game changer for them. And certainly in the book, we talk about how to do that and the phases of that and you know how to be a real architect of those moments. But really at the end of the day, raising awareness to the fact that when I'm in a disruptive moment, it's the greatest degree of readiness and access I'll ever have to my ability to change. 
You know, one of the things, you know, the concept of uh, innovation and disruption, they're, they're almost, they're almost the, the backsides of each other. At, at least I sort of think of it that way. Um, what do you, what do you think the differences are between disruption and innovation or, or, or is there kind of a, a continuum that they live on together? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I, I think, um, I would say, and having, having heard from clients, um, in fact, I, I, uh, I was just speaking with a client a few weeks ago who retrospectively, uh, and I wasn't aware of this, um, talked about how his period of deep disruption unearthed a creativity in his life that he'd never had access to before. So Joel, I, I think you're onto something here. I think there is a, um, a, a symbiotic relationship between disruption and innovation. Although I would say this, I, I, uh, I often will take issue with folks who mistake innovation with what I'll call iteration. I, I think there's very few true innovators out there. Um, there's a lot of you know, iterators out there. I'd call myself one of those that take good concepts, smart concepts, and build on them and hone and refine them and evolve them. Um, there's very few of us that are, that are truly innovative, that are creating things out of nothing. Um, you know, those are our people to, to really preserve and, and protect. Um, so I would say that I think both iterating and innovating can be outcomes of disruptive moments. No question about it. You know, I, I spent um, the first, the first big part of my career in the venture capital business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's, it's a crazy hard business. It's a ferocious business, uh, a lot of money to be made. Uh, a lot of money's moving all the time. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, people have always said is, you know, what's the difference between like uh, innovation in small companies and innovation in big companies? And I don't think big companies are terribly innovative. I think maybe they're iterative, like what, like what you said, um, but that's not really their job. Their job isn't so much to innovate. Their job is to, you know, once the innovation is in their possession, they go deep, 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 and they, they move that thing. And that's why, uh, you know, <coughs> um, there's the, the ecosystem allows for little companies and big companies to work together. The uh, little companies innovate, big companies operate. And that's why big companies buy little companies. They take their innovation. So a little company will take it to uh, some level, whatever the level is. And then the big company, which has more distribution, more horsepower, more relationships, more money, more inventory, more manufacturing capability, all the, all the things that they have, they then can drive it deep into, into society and they can blow it up in a big way. So uh, I, I think that there's a role. Everybody has a certain role in this deal. And, you know, it's uh, big companies shouldn't stop all of a sudden and say, well, I want to be more innovative. You know what? Uh, maybe you need to plug yourself into the venture uh, ecosystem and, and buy innovation so that you can do what you're great at. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, and I, I would say just building on that, Joel, that that probably the, the the most provocative proposition that we live by is not just that yes, we'll all be hit with the 50-year flood at some point. We're all going to get, you know, life's going to impose itself on us. We actually believe you can author these disruptive moments. You can trigger them in a way that helps you get access on demand these kinds of disruptive moments. Now, what if we could do that? We believe that's possible. We think that there's ways and means and a fitness level that one can, can, um, create that allows you to get access to those kinds of things. You don't have to get divorced every seven years to, you know, to be creative. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you, do you um, 
Do you think that the disruption that's happened in our society over the last couple of years with the pandemic and all the other things that are happening, the political unrest, all the things that we're dealing with, you know, do you think that companies are, are dealing well from a change management point of view? I mean, I mean, are they are they adapting to some of these uh, changes? Are they leading the change? Are they are they lagging the change? What do you, what do you think many companies are, are facing? Yeah, and I, 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 good question, uh, Joel. And I, I, I tend to uh, have a metric view of the world. I like to go to the data, you know, outside of my own my own feelings. And and I would say that um, agree with the term, like the term or not. I think the great resignation, if you will, is is emblematic of the fact that we're 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 failing wildly at our ability to uh, embrace the reality of of the world that we now live in, um, ad- adapt appropriately. And find new solutions, um, and, and so I think that uh, you know, by and large, we have a lot of work to do to to recontract with the 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 notion and the nature of work, and and of course that's little c contract, not 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 uh, uh, you know capital C contract, but we have a a social contract with each other around work and the nature of it, and 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 I think we've got a long way to go. To, to accelerate in the direction of, of recontracting with one another around work. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, we opened the show talking about highest and best use and people being uh, contemplative about themselves. But I think corporate America is facing a, a real tragedy here with this uh, resignation because they're not providing a work environment that many people, apparently, and I'm, I'm just talking in a blanket way, if, if all these people are leaving, it has something to do with them not being satisfied Maybe they aren't feeling like they're doing their highest and best use at work. And maybe what managers need to be doing, you know, is am I getting the highest and best out of my people, which, by the way, is is good for the company. So uh, how are are you seeing companies doing this? Are you doing exercises with the companies to help them to do this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joel, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. And I think there will be big winners and big losers and, 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 and all points in between as we go through this disruptive period. Um, and, and for sure, you know, I, I was, I was trained in my undergraduate education as, as, as an economist, right? So I, I think we're, we're in a supply and demand, uh, scenario here where people want something different, um, in their, in their contract with their employer and their work life. And people are going to, to rally and be in a position to offer those kinds of arrangements or not. That's the bottom line. And, and so I think some organizations are certainly doing that. Um, and others are not. And, and one way I think you do that, and it's not the only way for sure, because um, I don't want to dismiss some of the, the fundamental or the, the infrastructure that needs to live, like, you know, where you go to work and, and, and how you do your work and technological infrastructure. I honor all those things and, and I don't uh, pretend to be a subject matter in those. But as it relates to the emotional and social contracts we have with our with our colleagues, I think this idea of psychological safety is a really big deal. And, and what I mean by that is really four levels of, of what I'll call inclusion safety, like really letting our colleagues know that they're part of us. Um, I think that's not always clear when we're in a, a working situation. And now that we've gone virtual to such an extent, creating a sense of safety and inclusiveness is really the first level in doing that. I think secondly, there's what we call learner safety, an ability to get better at your job, get better in your functional area, and the latitude to make some reasonable mistakes along the way. I would say contributor safety, 
you know, an opportunity to be on the field and make a contribution. And then lastly, Joel, what I'll say is this idea of challenger safety, um, safe, uh, a safe place to, to call out uh, inefficiencies that where you see them without uh, a fear of retribution. Well, you know, whether companies are doing a good job of that or not, and that, you know, it's company by company, some companies do better than others. And there are great consultants that work on these kinds of things. Uh, companies need to deal with the fact that employees are leaving and they're leaving for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they're leaving because they are being uh, driven away from your company, or maybe they're being attracted to something else. I, you know, listen, uh, I, I recently heard that people are making so much money in the crypto markets that they don't have to work anymore. There's a lot of people that are making a lot of money doing that. There are people that are probably going into the, the gig business where they're doing some side hustle kind of stuff. They could put a, they could put a living together uh, you know, by doing uh, Uber or by doing graphic artist work and making pictures and selling now these new NFTs. Uh, I mean, there's lots of ways for people to make money. They don't have to stand in in a in a company and, and tolerate what they don't like anymore. If they if that's the fact. So some people are being drawn away. Some people are being pushed away. But I think companies need to look in the mirror and they need to really take a hard look. So you're you're talking about executives asking the question. I think they also need to ask the question about their people. You know, how are the people doing? Are they feeling like they're contributing at their highest and best level? Yeah, no question, Joel. And, and I will tell you that, um, you know, back to the data, you know, we're 87% amongst us here in the United States, uh, uh, for, for your listeners, would rather be doing something else with their lives. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. And I think part of the opportunity in the, in the, the best organizations we've seen, I'll use uh, healthcare, uh, a key vertical where, where we work, use that as an example. The best organizations in that space are, have done a 180 around contracting with their providers. They have three-day work relationships with physicians. They've created two-day-a-week work relationships with, with their nurses to provide them the latitude to pursue passion projects, uh, alternate careers to create a, a portfolio approach to their work-life experience, as opposed to being in somewhat of an archaic, you know, uh, you know, stay or go kind of bifurcated view of the world. They're creating uh, new and innovative approaches to a, a, a work life. Yeah. Well, I think they, uh, they're, some of them are doing a good job and there's more work to be done. No doubt about it. Yeah, for sure. So any, um, any other thoughts on on what companies are doing that uh, what innovative things companies are doing to uh, you know have better relationships with their with their uh, employees have better relationships with their executives? I mean, what are things that executives on this show that the people that listen to our show can take away and they can put to work and they can say, listen, here are things that we need to do to make sure that people don't leave our our employee. Yeah. Well, and and um, this may not be a, a new concept, but it's. It's a concept that never goes out of style. And we hear this every day in our work. It's people want to feel like their work and their contribution has meaning, Joel. They want to feel like what they're showing up to work or logging on every morning. They want to be able to see that their contribution um, is meaningful. And they want to believe that it contributes to something greater than themselves. This is an opportun opportune time to double down on a sense of purpose as an organization to be really thoughtful and deliberate in helping every single team member see how their pull on the rope is helping the organization succeed. So, you know, that doesn't sell a lot of books, 
Um, but it's, it's always true and it never goes out of style and, and it doesn't take large amounts of time or resources to, to continue to reinforce that. But right now, um, that can be a real differentiator in attracting talent, in retaining talent and getting the very best out of the talent you have. Yeah. You know, I would imagine uh, that there's really two parts of this. One is that the company itself, and then there's the employee. So the employee feels like they're contributing in, in they're in a meaningful way, which is, which is great. But they also want to feel like they're working for a company that is doing meaningful things for the world. And they may or may not be working for that kind of company. So I think what I'm hearing you say, and I, and I would agree with this, is that at the highest strategic level, companies need to reframe why they're doing what they're doing and make it to be a meaningful thing. Uh, I, I find that to be, I, I call that cause. When you have a cause of some kind, you get on the same side of the table as your customers, you get on the same side of the table as your employees. You now are all operating as a team to accomplish something to make the world a better place or you know whatever you're doing. And that's not... Uh, that's not being hippie style. I mean, that's that's really just kind of just uh, I, the best companies have some really good purpose, like uh, building computers, you know, so people have more access to information or, or whatever it is. I mean, whatever your your purpose is. But, you know, uh, Rick, thank you so much for you know being on the show. Uh, the goal of the show is always to deliver the inside track on, you know, the, which is the best, fastest or smartest way to get something done. And you've certainly done that on how uh, people think about leadership, uh, strategy, change, all those different kinds of elements. And uh, for the guests that do that, uh, those are our advantage players and you're definitely one of our advantage players. So thank you very much for uh, for sharing your insights and information about you, your company, your book, all your stuff will be uh, available on the links that are uh, on our uh, podcast page. And I just say thank you for joining us. Joel, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Very well. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the Inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.